welcome to more of a comment than a question. I'm Rachel Hartman, and with me, as always, is my friend and co-host, Paul Connor. Paul, I just, like, gave up on trying to come up with something witty to say at the beginning. <laughs> so, how are you doing? Uh, I'm doing good. No, it's it's fine. It's fine. Uh, I, I'm still going to try and put you down as, when I introduce the podcast, just so you know. But, you know, it, it's fine if you don't want to play. No, I'm good. I'm tired, though. I woke up at, like, 3.30 this morning to watch an Australian football game. Uh, and I thought I was... it was going to be something about your kid or, you know. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, he was he was sleeping soundly. Um, mm. So probably a bad choice. I mean, my team won, which is good. Uh, and, you know, I, I got kind of excited at the end of the game. Um, so... I guess no regrets. I might, I think I'm, I might regret it later in the day when I'm struggling to like, I'm working on job materials at the moment. Uh, so it's, it's, it's writing, which is probably my least favorite thing to do. Um, I just write so slowly. I don't know about you, but like, I feel like I can work all day and get out like three paragraphs and just look at what I did and, and just think, my God, where did all that time go? Um, yeah, I don't know. For me, it depends on what I'm writing. Uh, if it's like intro or discussion stuff, it's actually easier for me than like hmm. if I'm writing. And the, yeah, this is just like for papers. Um, cause it's easy to just like want to say things, but then figuring out all the technical ways of writing stuff, that's way harder. Oh, but anyway, wow. that's interesting. Yeah. I see. I find the methods and results a lot easier to write. Yeah. Most people intro. do. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but anyway, um, yeah, so we have a guest. Yes, we do. We, we I thought you were going to ask me about my week, but whatever. Longer. Who cares about my week? <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm sorry. How was your week? <laughs> it was good. I defended my master's. Oh, congratulations. So I'm, uh, I'm now, you can call me Master Rachel. Um, Wait. Can I? <laughs> no, thing? that's problematic. That's super <laughs> problematic. Don't do that. <laughs> um, yeah, but that, yeah, that was, it was fun. It was nice. No, I, just, I mean, like, is that actually a title? Because I know when you get a PhD, you're technically a doctor. Yeah, but no, I don't I've think never heard anybody say, I have my master's, <laughs> so I'm technically now a master. I think it's just a joke. I don't think that it's a technical yeah. thing. But yeah. Anyway, okay, yes, let's get to our guests. So um, with us today is Aaron Moss, who is a, I should have looked up the exact title, um, Senior Researcher Scientist at Cloud Research. I really should know this. Um, <laughs> so yeah, he and uh, he got his PhD from Tulane uh, in 2018 and has been working at Cloud Research ever since. Uh and also adjuncting on the side. Um, and he's, I've worked closely with him for the past almost a year. Um, so yeah, uh, welcome to the pod, Aaron, and sorry for completely butchering that intro. <laughs> All right, no, uh, no offense taken, and thank you for having me on. I've been a, a fan of the show for a couple of months now, and just really enjoy the conversations you guys have with people. So pretty excited to join you today. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, yeah, it's great to have you. It's great to have you here. I'm I'm curious. Um, Rachel said you got your PhD at Tulane. Um, what in and what was your what was your research on? Yeah, so um, 
it was an experimental social psychology program. And um, it's a pretty small program. There were, I think, three social faculty when I started. A fourth one came in, but the three people there were all focused on uh, stereotyping prejudice intergroup relations. So uh, my research was uh, in that mold, looking at prejudice and discrimination. So I ran some studies early on looking at kind of what information people use to make judgments about discrimination. Uh, there was one line of work um, where we, uh, my advisor and uh, another student were kind of using some moral concepts like intent and harm and manipulating how intentional behavior was, how much harm someone experienced because of that, and looking at how that affected, uh, you know, both white and black participants' judgments of discrimination. But the things that I was mainly focused on personally were um, kind of the moral conflict that people feel when they are confronted with evidence of their own prejudice. So um, how do people kind of reason through that? What kind of defensive reactions do they have? Um, when are they willing to accept that information? And then kind of um, one step removed from that, what do we think of people's reactions, especially people who are willing to say, yeah, that behavior I just engaged in was prejudice. Do we um, kind of give them credit for acknowledging that? Or do we see it as confirmation that like, yeah, this is a biased and prejudiced person? Um, and think more negatively of them. So those are some questions that I was really interested in. <laughs> some of my studies were more successful than others. Some of them are still kind of uh, working their way through, you know, the publication pipeline. Um, oh, but those are the, some of the things I was interested in uh, working on. Excellent. Yeah, that's that's really uh, interesting stuff. Uh, is there anything you can share with us that would get you canceled if you were still in academia? <laughs> I think I work pretty hard to avoid getting canceled. <laughs> um, uh, so no, nothing that would, I think, get canceled. But um, I do, I mean, I think some of my interests um, maybe go against the grain a little bit. Um, uh, so my dissertation in particular was mm. um, uh, some stuff that, you know, I think, Paul, you have um, a background and interest in. So I wasn't so much interested in implicit bias. I mean, that's that's been around a long time since my days as an undergrad, it was a huge thing in the field. So I got kind of swept up and interested in that. And as <laughs> the debate and kind of the questioning about what implicit measures do uh, has unfolded, I've taken like a kind of a step away from that. But we were using implicit uh, measures, the implicit association test to give people feedback about mm -hmm. their attitudes. And then we looked at really what do people, how do they respond? And um, what we kind of did or what I, the idea that I had was especially with implicit attitudes, people don't have a lot of context when they come to a measure like this. And so they might be heavily influenced by norms and how other people react and what they think the appropriate reaction is. So mm -hmm. we manipulated social norms. We had these um, kind of very in-depth experiments in the lab, really classic social psych stuff, where we had Confederates model behavior, either accepting this feedback or rejecting it. And then we looked at basically how people responded. And um, the idea was if you kind of, our, our culture, our climate, right? Race is so front and center for good reasons, um, but it creates a lot of defensiveness. People don't want to be seen as racist. And so if you can take some of that um, pressure off, if you can create a, a space where people think, oh, it's okay for me to actually acknowledge that I have these biases and pair that with a norm that means I should work on these, I should um, mm -hmm. be uh looking for ways to kind of improve um, that people might be more willing to admit their, their biases. And so, um, you know, I think like, uh, I haven't really talked to them, but some people might say, well, you know, maybe we shouldn't create a climate where people actually uh, feel okay with these biases. So I think it's important to pair it with the 
I need mm. to do something about it work. But, uh, you know, I could see um, that pushes against the grain a little bit to say maybe part of the reason why people don't admit these things more freely is because the climate is very, very uh, heavily against admitting that sort of stuff. We think very mm. negatively of people um, and we don't really see a lot of nuance or perhaps don't always see as much nuance as we should because there are different degrees of, mm. you know, biases. And, and so, um, yeah, hopefully I don't get canceled for that, but <laughs> I don't think so. So did you find that people were responsive to the behavior modeled by the Confederate? Yeah, very much so. So we, we did two, two studies, really. The first one, um, we actually used uh, some videos with uh, Brian Nosek and Mazarin Banaji. Um, it was a series that Alan Alda had actually put together. They take the IET, they kind of respond to it. So we gave them these, you know, test creators um, getting their own feedback. And there's this great kind of line, Brian Nosek, um, talks about, you know, I'm not going to, I'm not going to reject this information. I think it's important. It it isn't what I consciously want to have, but it kind of talks through how he reasons through it. So we gave that to people as an example. We found that that video um, and that demonstration was effective. People were more willing to acknowledge that they have these implicit biases, or that they have, you know, other forms of prejudice after seeing that. And the same thing in our lab experiment where we had Confederates who, um, really modeled kind of a similar sort of acceptance or a denial. Mm-hmm. Um, we had these voice recordings where um, we're kind of still in the process of coding those, but I think people were really, we kind of put our participants on the spot. So we, we had this Confederate, they give their answer first, they kind of model it. And then our researcher turns to the participant and says, now, what do you think about the test? And I think when people are kind of confronted with that, they really glom onto what example they just saw. And then we had them fill out measures in private afterwards. And so in both of those measures, the kind of public response and the private measures, we see that people are uh, pretty strongly influenced by this norm, this example that was just set um, by someone else. Cool. Interesting. So what made you, um, seemed like a, you know, promising research topic. What made you decide to leave academia and uh, just leave it all behind or at least try to? Um, yeah, that's a great question. So I, I don't know if I decided as much as uh, academia decided for me. So, um, going throughout graduate school, it took me uh, a while to kind of, I think, figure out how to run studies and how to answer questions early on. I ran a number of studies that were just overly complicated. They weren't really yielding clean answers. And it took me a while to figure out, uh, oh, I really need to design things differently and ask questions differently. By the time I figured that out, I was getting, you know, midway or past in my program and um, started to have some like uh, what I would consider to be, you know, um, nice papers, but they're still not fully published. Some of them are uh, working their way through. So uh, by the time I got ready to be on the job market, I just ultimately wasn't competitive for lots of uh, kind of top jobs. So I thought, oh, I'll look at teaching jobs. Um, my search was also a little bit constrained by family situations. So my wife's an academic. She um, had finished her PhD a couple of years before me. And so I was kind of restricted by geography. And we had been living apart for a while since then. And I've always had very kind of broad and open interests. So um, I wasn't uh, against going into industry, but I didn't have a great sense of like what opportunities were out there. And it was kind of just the start of this whole trend of everyone getting these jobs at these, you know, fancy tech companies and, um, and kind of the whole leaving academia behind. So, um, so yeah, I think ultimately, uh, I ended up getting kind of fortunate and that I just found my way to my current position, but I did try, uh, to apply to a number of kind of teaching focused academic jobs 
didn't hear anything back. So I took the message, you know, I should uh, <laughs> um, move on. And so uh, I also had the goal to, you know, um, live in the same place where my wife was living since we had been apart for three years. So it was a little bit easier to say, yeah, I'm not going to focus on postdocs or anything like that um, or string out visiting positions. I'm just going to go do something else. Hmm. Well, I would say that uh, Rachel's wrong that you've left it all behind because it, I mean, you are, you are still producing research and you're in a role that's very much connected to academia in, in, in your role at cloud research. So tell us a bit about that. Um, what, what is cloud research? A lot of our listeners probably don't know. And uh, what, what do you do there? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so cloud research is very simply a company that connects uh, all kinds of researchers with online research participants. Um, there's a couple of different platforms we draw on to use uh, to do that, and we're in the process of building our own participant platform. So historically, um, a lot of listeners or people in academia may know cloud research as Turk Prime. We started off as a company that was kind of an addition to Mechanical Turk. We created a, a suite of kind of tools to just make Mechanical Turk easier to use to automate some of the things that people were doing there. And so that's kind of the initial um, way that a lot of people encountered uh, cloud research. Today, our focus has shifted a little bit. There's other sources of online participants, these market research panels that are very good for demographic targeting. It's not possible in Mechanical Turk. We provide people to access, uh, access to those participants. And um, so we have kind of these do-it-yourself online tools. And then we also have a team that kind of manages complex projects for people. Um, a lot of our um, clients and users are academics, but uh, lots of academics have been going into industry. You know, there's lots of uh, there's huge industry and market research. There's government researchers. There's nonprofit. Um, so lots of different researchers use us, and there's kind of a spectrum of studies that are just used online website tools and launch it yourself, and studies that we manage. And um, you know, of course, over the last several years, our main focus, like most other people in online research is really on data quality. So we kind of started off um, as providing access and tools that make things easier, but really since about 2018 or 2019, when um, data quality problems became a big, big issue, we've been focused on really trying to solve data quality problems across all kinds of online platforms. And that really requires understanding the differences between these sources of online platforms, you know, places like Mechanical Turk and Prolific and the Connect platform that we're building um, are very different than market research panels and kind of how people get there, how long they stay there, what kind of tasks they're willing to do, what kind of expectations they have for studies and payment. Understanding all those things is important for kind of building data quality um, solutions there. And, and that's kind of what um, I do. So I've been very surprised and um, happily surprised that my job is, I consider it kind of academic adjacent at cloud research. We have a a very small research team. Overall, we're a very small company, about 25 employees. I was like the 12th when I joined. We have three people on our research team, um, including the founder, one of the founders, Leigh Blitman, was a PhD in uh, cognitive experimental psych. And our team um, just looks for ways to demonstrate uh, useful things for researchers. So that might be data quality, that might be sampling in different ways in online platforms. It might be kind of innovative ways to run studies that people didn't know they could run online. We um, conduct research on all these different topics. We write up our papers. We try to send a lot of them out to journals. Sometimes we just post preprints. Um, and we look just for ways to kind of share information with people, things that 
you know, they may not know. I, the way I think about it a lot is um, researchers are, you know, busy. There's a lot of demands just to keep up with what's going on in your specific area, your interests. And um, people are not necessarily experts about online platforms. I mean, they know a lot. Social psychologists have adopted a lot of the online um, methods. But some of the some, there's some nuance sometimes to these platforms and how they operate and how to do different things. And so, you know, we spend most of our time focused on that stuff. And once we have things that we think are useful, it's really fun to write them up and to share them with people. Um, so we kind of look for ways to yeah just share that knowledge with people, how to do things better, how to get better data quality, how to sample people and avoid different biases, uh, everything kind of in that realm. Yeah. Um, so we're, we want to talk about uh, one of the papers that you published uh, or are in the process of publishing that you posted, um, ethics paper about the ethics of using uh, MTurk. I think maybe we should get all of the sort of broader cloud research questions out of the way first before we dive into the details of that paper. Um I know Paul had a few questions, but <laughs> Paul's also trying really hard to not talk too much because he noticed that uh, he, he's always talking a lot more than me. And so, <laughs> Paul, do you want me to ask your questions for you or uh, <laughs> no, it's okay. You can. <laughs> <laughs> nodding, nodding is not, is not good podcasting. Um <laughs> Yeah, I, I mean, I just have silly questions about cloud research. So, like, uh, you, the name change from Turk Prime to cloud research, what was the reasoning there? I'm curious what the logo represents. You have, like, three red squares, three blue squares, and then two green and one yellow square. And I'm looking at it just going, like, what does that mean? Um, so I have a good answer and uh, a not-so-good answer to those questions. <laughs> the good answer is that, um, as I mentioned Cloud research started as Turk Prime, and um, people really uh, associated us with Mechanical Turk. There was a lot of confusion about whether or not we actually were a part of Mechanical Turk, which has kind of uh, always been ironic within the company. You know, there was like ten people working on this thing, and people thought we had the resources of, uh, of Amazon. So that, and, and you know, I understand the confusion. Um, so there was a certain point when we kind of shifted beyond just mechanical Turk and we focused on, um, you know, market research panels and, uh, what we call our managed research service, which is like, people have a really complicated project that they want to run. They're not really sure how to do it, or it's just going to take them a ton of time and internal resources that, that they don't have. And so mm. they might ask us to run it for them. This is often like a, um, maybe a government agency or a research team in a, in a corporation. Um, and there's just really complicated things that they, it would take a long time for them to figure it all out. So once we shifted our focus um, to more than just Mechanical Turk, rebranding as cloud research was a way to get beyond just that association with Mechanical Turk. Um, uh, so yeah, Turk Prime worked well when the company was really just the MTurk toolkit and focused on helping people out there. But um, the name change was really because our uh, focus had shifted into much more than that. We wanted to be associated with more than that. It's a way to get people to think of us as more than just a MTurk sort of add-on. The logo, um, you know, as a company grows, it, one thing that's been actually kind of fun about um, joining the company uh, as a startup that was so small is, is kind of seeing it grow and see how things change. And um, uh, as part of the name change, we were working with some people uh, doing some marketing 
and I'm not really sure how they arrived at this logo, but you know, certain ideas would come with, uh, be shared within the company and people would say, yes, I like this or no, I don't like that. There were a lot of ideas for the name and the logo. I, I don't know where the logo came from. Um, uh, it, it's always kind of reminded me of the Microsoft logo because there's like some squares and mm-hmm. colors. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I'm not, I don't have a marketing background, but you know, I personally think there was like a, an opportunity to play on the idea of clouds and like people associate up with good things and clouds are light and fluffy. So, uh, I don't know how we arrived at that current logo, but, and I don't know what's going on with it. So I'm uh, equally as stumped as you, but, uh, but yeah, uh, I, it gives me kind of a, a Microsoft vibe, which is, I guess if you're a small company, not the worst association in the world. Unless you get sued, in which case it would be, it would be pretty bad. Well, we're yeah. pretty far from, uh, yeah, I don't know yeah. if you think Monopoly like uh, lawsuit, <laughs> we're uh, uh, just quite the far from there. Amazon, Amazon, thing. so like you probably know a lot more about Amazon Mechanical Turk than me, but I, I have heard people say things like, you know, Amazon does not care about MTurk at all. Like it's such a, it, it's just something that they built um, that a few engineers were in charge of and they created this thing. And now like almost nobody from Amazon is paying attention to it because uh, it just doesn't make, it doesn't make any money compared to the the more lucrative aspects of their business. What's your take on that? Like, What's Amazon, the company's actual degree of investment slash involvement with Amtok now? That's a great question. And, um, you know, I have, I'll, I'll kind of acknowledge at the outset my own uh, limited ability to answer that. But, um, you know, I have like read and listened to and consumed a number of different things about Amazon as a company. And I don't think people fully appreciate I think it's very difficult to fully appreciate how many things this company does, how big they are. Um, and so, yeah, a part a mechanical Turk is a small part of what Amazon does. And the CEO is not sitting around thinking about mechanical Turk at the same time, uh, mechanical Turk has grown into, um, you know, its own, I'm sure, um, big driver of, of, you know, revenue and money for uh, the company. So I think there's divisions, uh, as far as I understand, within Amazon. And there's gr- a group of people who are responsible for Mechanical Turk. Um, and uh, Amazon has, or that Mecha- Mechanical Turk group, uh, has been, you know, more responsive or less responsive at times to concerns um, about Mechanical Turk. Mm. And, and it gets a little bit complicated, too, in that, like, I imagine you maybe heard this from an academic or, you know, other academics. Um, Probably. I only hang out with academics. So yeah, I, sure. I, right. I, I assume <laughs> so the so. academic perspective, right, is like, yeah, Mechanical Turk is not investing resources and in making this a better platform for research. But Amazon, I mean, you know, lots of research happens there. So they certainly, I think, have an incentive to protect that. But that's not the only thing that goes on on Mechanical Turk. And it wasn't really built as a platform mm. for behavioral mm. scientists. It was built kind of like, uh, you know, for the computer scientist. Mm. That's why there's like a lot of functionality that's hidden behind the API. So you have to be able to write code to interact with it. Um, lots, of, lots of businesses use it. So some of the problems of Mechanical Turk with people kind of uh, from all these countries all over the world, being able to get into, you know, our studies as behavioral scientists using VPN and stuff. Um, it doesn't really matter to Amazon if a worker is in India or Venezuela, or anywhere else, if they're completing other kinds of tasks. It's not good for us as behavioral scientists 
because they're not a population that we want to study. So I think my perspective is that Mechanical Turk uh, fits in with Amazon's kind of libertarian and hands-off approach to a lot of things. Like, you know, the Amazon marketplace is full of all kinds of fraud. And I know Amazon invests effort in trying to clean that up. They'll tell you that's what they do, right? But um, by and large, they kind of have this, we created the platform, you can kind of use it approach. And I think some of that, you know, rubs off on how they view Mechanical Turk. But I definitely um, do know that over the last couple of years, they have been I think more responsive to concerns of uh, academics and other users and doing a little bit more to try to, you know, shore up the platform and address issues and concerns because there's a significant amount of behavioral research done on the platform. Yeah. So just quickly, uh, that was Aaron Moss of cloud research who said that we're not interested in studying Venezuelans and Indians. <laughs> Rachel and I, <laughs> Rachel and I, uh, to the citizens of Venezuela and India, we we think you are uh, worthy subjects <laughs> of psychological research, and we condemn wholeheartedly. <laughs> Aaron's, Aaron's, yeah, I got uh, myself in trouble. <laughs> it's uh, okay; it, it happens inevitably to anyone who comes on our show. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I, I would just, you know. Uh, I get a joke, but just to quickly uh, clarify that, um, you know, most people are running studies in the U.S. And the problem, I mean, it would be great if Mechanical Turk um, was, uh, you know, better. I think uh, going back, uh, you've talked about on this show, um, interest about why it's not easier to kind of pull in participants from all kinds of countries. Um, the, The real issue that comes up, I think, with Mechanical Turk is there's not enough people in these countries uh, at the moment. And then you have obviously like language issues that come up, but for a long time, you know, Amazon lets people sign up on Mechanical Turk from all kinds of countries. They give you a list of like 160, which is, you know, crazy. But from their perspective, if there's like a hundred people in that country who are willing to complete some kind of task and a business wants to um, connect with that person, like that's great. But as behavioral scientists, we need a pretty big pool of people in order to get several hundred for a study. And so the the sampling capability, I don't think, is there in all these different countries. Um, that's an attempt to recover. <laughs> all right. Well, nice we'll save. see what happens. Nice save. <laughs> I, think, <laughs> I think that was fine. Um, but yeah, I think so. I think we can transition from this uh, discussion about MTurk to, yeah, talking about, I guess, the paper, which is about the ethics of using MTurk. Um, so I'll say, like, from... My perspective when I started using MTurk, I was more on the side of this is unethical. Like, why are we paying people such like little, such little money? That sounds wrong. <laughs> um, <laughs> not enough money uh, to complete tasks, and like, like why are they even doing it? Like, it just didn't make any sense to me. Um, and then. I think like part of, uh, I don't know. I just was like, started to like, think more about like, you know, markets and free market stuff and like became a little less, uh, left wing economically, I guess. And it just like started to make more sense to me that like, yeah, there's a marketplace and people can choose to participate in it or not and that's you know the it's their choice um and so like in what sense is it exploitive uh but yeah i guess i might be getting a little a uh, bit ahead of myself here so um 
why don't you just give us a little bit of background of like what were what are the what were the sort of claims that you were trying to address and respond to with this paper? Yeah, uh, so I think uh, it goes back a little bit to you know Mechanical Turk emerged as this uh, platform um, early on. There were some researchers who were uh, right interested in, hey, can we use this for sampling? And there's all these early papers kind of came out, showed, yeah, you know, you can get people online to complete these studies. They provide pretty, uh, pretty good data. There are lots of lots of question marks, like in the early days of online research about why would anyone provide quality data basically in any study? Um, so, you know, these papers came out and then pretty shortly thereafter, there was just like this explosion of interest in Mechanical Turk and people were um, I think actually one of the great things about Mechanical Turk is it's a very open sort of environment. So it gives people a lot of opportunity to kind of like test and experiment and um, figure out what's going on. So there were just, you know, tons and tons of papers looking at data quality. And then, you know, pretty shortly after this, like, was established as a thing, people started uh, also asking questions about ethics and kind of how much are people getting paid and who is it that's on here, Um so after the initial questions of data quality were answered, it was like, well, who are these people? And, you know, why are they completing these studies for, you know, a dollar or 10 cents or whatever the case may be. Um, and over the years, kind of, I think um, within a couple of years, so like some of these initial papers came out 2010, 2011, within I'd say like five years or so, there were a number of studies that had popped up that said uh, a lot of people on Mechanical Turk um, are very, and kind of like financial, uh, strained financial situations. They're taking these jobs because there's not other jobs available to them, um, right? They're actually being completely uh, abused and mistreated on the platform. There's like requesters who are posting tasks. They'll take the work, they'll reject the assignments if the person doesn't get paid. Um, and there were a lot of like question marks, I think, popping up. Um, and some of this came from uh, like some popular press articles where, you know, journalists or someone had interviewed a couple of people, a couple of workers, let's say 10, I don't really know. Um, there was also some academic work, kind of like ethnography, um, interviewing like 40 or 50 so participants, right? And there was kind of this story emerging of these people uh, are kind of financially precarious. They're on this platform taking these small tasks for a dollar or so, um, right? They don't have any other kinds of benefits or safety net. Uh, requesters can take money from them. And, you know, they spend a lot of time on the platform as well, uh, searching for for hits because there's a lot of competition for these tasks. And so they're not compensated for that. And um, and it amounts to like a really low wage. So there were really three issues about kind of who's on Mechanical Turk and what's their financial status. What are What's their experience on the platform like? Are they being mistreated by requesters? And then how much do they kind of ultimately make or earn while they're on the platform? I'd say those are the three broad um, things. And uh, yeah, just to quickly add, you know, as a graduate student, when um, I encountered some of these papers really arguing that there's this ethical um, concern and these issues with Mechanical Turk, I mean, I, I wasn't really sure how to respond either. I um, certainly don't want to be taking advantage of people um, and, uh you know, I, I spent a lot of time debating, like, is this work? Like, why are people doing this? Uh, so I had a lot of these same kind of hesitations and um, questions myself. Yeah, I think that just like as a maybe tangent, I think it's interesting to just think about, like, what does exploiting mean? Like, if, and so, okay, here's where, 
here's where I'm going to say controversial things. But if we're, you know, if there's like a country where people are, there's like sweatshops, basically, um, people are earning very low wages to like make stuff for us rich Americans um, and, you know, doing like really hard work. If there, if it, the alternative is to be in dire poverty and not earn anything. Um, I think that's kind of like, I think people would say that's exploitation, right? But what are you, what are your all thoughts on this? Like what makes it uh, exploitation and like, where, where do you draw the line? Like what, what would be just like, uh, you know, creating job opportunities So, I'd love uh, to hear Paul's, Paul's <laughs> thoughts as we ponder uh, global capitalism. It's uh, it's a great question. I, I've thought about it a lot. I, I was, um, you know, I was sort of a super lefty activist type. Uh, there was this big documentary that came out called The Corporation. And there was a whole, I don't know if either of you have seen it. Um, but it was one of these, you know, like a, the, around that time in the, either the 2000s or the 2010s, there were these big protests against the WTO, uh, sort of like the uh, early sort of incidents where you had sort of Antifa making the news and turning over cars in cities and these big protests, especially in Seattle. For some reason, the American Pacific Northwest, major, major um, center for this kind of like radical left-wing activism. And I was sort of into it and I, there was this, uh, documentary, I think, yeah, I, I, I guess, Rachel, I would say I had a similar progression on this than you, where you, you, or, you know, when, I think like there's the, a naive take, which is you just sort of learn that sweatshops exist and you just sort of think in this simple abstract way about, ah, oh, big corporation, bad working conditions, um, you know, rich Western countries taking advantage of, of poor, uh, uh, developing countries and um, especially if there's like underage people working you know like this is you know really like emotional response that this is wrong and stuff like that I, I would say though I eventually I started like learning a bit more about global development and what actually lifts people out of poverty and you know the 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 major reductions in poverty in the last century have been in China, um, largely due to like industrialization and, and these people going from like subsistence farming to like some really bad factory job, which is still like economically better and allows people to save. And, um, you know, they say in Bangladesh, like sweatshops, a lot of the kids of the mothers who went and suffered in those sweatshops got educated and and sort of escape from poverty as a result so i think it's really complicated definitely you can think of like hypothetical scenarios that are clearly like exploitation right like if you find a country going through famine right and you imagine some sex tourist goes there and just starts to like offer women I'll pay you $5 to have sex with me. And this woman is like starving and she wants to feed her kids. Like it's cl clearly exploitation, right? Like, I don't know. I don't think anybody would object to that. So 
but yeah, I mean, it's, it's complicated and, you know, I don't know. I just, I just want data for my studies. So I don't want to think about it too much. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I don't know. Aaron, what, what do you think? I, I don't have any strong conclusions. I just think it's really complicated, probably a lot more complicated than people give it credit for a lot of the time. Yeah, no, I think I'm in a, a similar place that uh, I'm certainly not an expert on these things. I certainly pay a lot of attention to politics, pay a lot of attention to, um, you know, conversations about inequality. It's something that I, uh, I care about. And I think it's, you know, it's something it, it's subjective, right? Everyone has like a different um, sense of what's fair. And I think about it um, really like things need to, it's easy to identify when things are way out of whack or out of balance. So like a corporation making tons of money they're paying their, uh, you know, their employees or their workers, like very little money and the money's getting concentrated in a, a few hands. Like it, it's very easy for us all to see that that uh, isn't good. And right at, at this moment, we have massive inequality in the country, uh, lots of big corporations. Uh, so there's lots of these questions about like how much should workers be getting? And I don't have the answer to all those questions, but I think, you know, the, um, <laughs> the, my vision of like, uh, what would make a good society, what would make, uh, corporations that also respect it's like a, a balance, you know, like there's like, you want a progressive taxation within a society, right? People at the top pay a little bit more than people in the middle who pay more than people at the bottom. Um, something should, similar should happen in a corporation, but asking like what specifically, how much should people be making? Uh, I, I think is often difficult. And, and yeah, look, when you're talking about, uh, you know, organizations moving into places where people uh, don't have alternatives. Um, yeah, I mean, market forces are sometimes very uh, unpleasant. Like companies can offer people very little. Um, you know, you. So I, I don't really have you know answers to how to solve some of the problems of global capitalism, but I, I, I do agree and think like uh, it's been this driver that can lift people out of poverty. The, the side effect is we destroy the planet and the, uh, uh, in the making of that. But um, yeah, they're really, they're really difficult questions. And like you said, uh, most people who are just looking to like collect some data, like don't want to be bothered with that. Most American consumers who are looking to buy stuff, like don't want to ponder, you know, mm. what the implications of buying from this company or that one uh, is. So they're really complicated questions in my mind. And I don't think I have, you know, solid answers to them. I've really, this big, differences between academics in how much they care about this stuff though right like, i mean i've met academics who literally are purely driven by market incentives and like not thinking about ethics at all they're like well what's the least i can pay and get data and and that's what they'll go with and then i've been in other labs that are like no we we have to at least pay minimum wage. Like, what are we, what are we doing here? If, if we're, we're paying below minimum wage and, you know, supposedly we're mm. engaged in, in issues of social justice and worried about inequality, how, you know? So, yeah, it's been, uh, it's quite interesting to see diff the extent to which people differ on how much they think about these things. So people, I think that um, it certainly differ, but, would you have you have a sense of where most people come down yeah i mean i think it's gotten better i would say uh but i would say that's more like norms shifting than people changing like i would say there's probably a lot of academics who at first were like what i can get basically data for like hardly any money and i can get hundreds of participants in a day for like i'll pay them 20 cents each that's amazing 
And though now, now there's sort of norms established of like, no, we, you have to pay people this amount. Um, and, and, and they're like, oh, okay. Right, right, right. Okay. So that's what I have to do. You know, or almost just like, um, <laughs> controlling for multiple comparisons, like, like just learning heuristics about, oh, this is, yeah. this is how you do research rather than really, uh, caring about the, the ethics of it. But I would say it seems to have gotten a lot better. I actually, I mean, I, I, I know that you're competitor, but I really get the impression that prolific takes this stuff seriously and prolific workers take their work quite seriously. And I mean, even I really appreciate, even though it was a pain in the neck, like I had all these battles of like, um, people failing attention checks, but then prolific was sort of saying, but your attention checks aren't fair for this reason and this reason, and, and you need to change them. And it, like, I just think that level of, um, that level of engagement in sort of this interplay between the worker and the researcher and stuff like that is really good. And, um, definitely something that MTurk doesn't provide, although, you know, cloud research probably gets into, into that kind of stuff too. So I don't know. Yeah. It, it seems to me to be heading in the right direction, I would say. Yeah. I think one, uh, important part of this, discussion which you address in the paper is the extent to which people are treating uh mtur kits as a job like as like you know this is what they're doing for work versus like paid leisure because like if you think about you know are we going to pay people to like sit around and watch tv we'd say like that's ridiculous right um and but obviously like they're generating value for us and um so we feel like we should compensate them but I think that there are, it is like a question that we should be asking is like, if people are just doing this for fun or, you know, in their free time and they're not relying on it as their main income, then like, does it need to be minimum wage or, you know, like what, like I'm not, it's not clear to me, like what the argument for that really is. Yeah. So, um, part of what, going back to a question that you asked earlier, part of what we wanted to show and kind of respond to some in the paper and explore ourselves really because i mean we had hypothesis but you know that's what, why you do the studies uh was how many people are using this as a job there was this kind of characterization from these popular press articles and some of this kind of ethnographic work that like this is what most people are doing and i know this fits with a lot of your interest on this show about ideology and you know norms and groups um i think a lot of academics like kind of uh accepted that um and you know, we get into some of these issues in the paper about like, there's some uh, reasons to question the sampling approach of some of these studies that, right, um, who is it that's going to respond to like a, a question or a survey asking you to like, uh, jump on a video call and talk about your experience on MTurk. It's not like the casual user who logs in and completes a few studies and has a few extra bucks. It's like, the person who's hanging around and doing more work. So there's like some systematic sampling bias uh, that we thought and some of the existing work uh, describing Mechanical Turk. And so we want, you know, our paper uses this uh, representative sampling approach where we randomly select people in these different groups based on their experience and wanted to give kind of a, a broader view of the platform. And um, part of our goal was, uh, our, our hunch was, was that the conversation and the kind of um, shared understanding was just disproportionate to what's actually going on. So, you know, in the paper we show, um, and I actually would have, 
we talked about this, I would have like loved to have been able to sample, uh, you know, behavioral scientists who use Mechanical Turk and ask them for their uh, perception or impression of these questions and then compare it to the reality of what we, but it, you know, it'd be hard to get like a good sample there. It'd be hard to get, you know, we um, couldn't get like a representative sample of social psychologists or uh, other psychologists. But, you know, I think a lot of people would be surprised that like 50 uh, something percent of people told us that they use Mechanical Turk as a form of paid leisure, that like they had some spare time. Some of these people are at their jobs. Some of them are just at home. Uh, they find it to be like a, a semi-profitable way to kill a little bit of time here and there. And they're not on the platform like 24-7. They're just completing a couple of hits here and there. They make some extra money to buy things on Amazon. Um, so that's the biggest group of people, like 50-something percent. There's a, another chunk of people, a sizable group, who say they kind of see it as a part-time job. It fits in and supplements their other income. And then there's a, a small but meaningful group, like 7 percent, I think, who really describe it like a, a full-time job. And um, so there's variability in like who, how people are trying to use Mechanical Turk. Um, and I think that like that matters for um, some of these conversations that, or issues that you're bringing up of like, um, is this really a job and what should we be paying people? Uh, I, you know, at Cloud Research, going back to what you said, Paul, we, we definitely do um, engage with people with issues like attention checks and even around payment. We don't, um, enforce uh, like a minimum um uh you know there's a lot of like practical complications with that uh, so i know not, not to uh get into like a, a whole um comparison with prolific but there's like some challenges with actually implementing that um and so we also recognize that like most people are adhering to the to the norm i haven't uh, personally encountered a lot of academics who have the mindset like i'm going to get data as cheap as i can i'm, I'm sure that they're out there but I think it has been a positive development that most people follow this norm, that a norm has emerged about what's what's fair and what's appropriate. And um, we realize that like, you know, everyone, sometimes people don't have a budget to adhere to that. And there are people on Mechanical Turk who are casually using the platform who are willing to take a study. Um, and so, you know, we uh, we understand that there's times when people can't pay whatever that norm is. And, and there's a lot of conversation about, should it be like US minimum wage? Should it be like $15 a living wage? Um, like what happens if the minimum wage gets lifted to $15 tomorrow? Like, you know, there's a lot of questions about what that should be, but, um, yeah, there's a lot of variability in who's using Inter. I saw an academic on Twitter say that they, either they, as an editor, they were going to reject any paper that wasn't paying at least $15 an hour for participants, or they would refuse to review a paper uh if if they paid less than 15 dollars an hour just as interesting like just different norms like flying around yeah uh, i've seen some of those tweets i don't think i've seen it pegged to 15 but i've yeah i've seen people say like i'm not going to review or i'm going to recommend rejection um (laughs) i've seen those before yeah okay so you said 50 percent don't use it as a job so that means 50 percent do well 50 like something percent say they see it as a um, form of paid leisure and that means that yeah there's like 45 percent or so who say they see it as like a a part-time job or as a uh like source of full-time work um and you know there's maybe some questions around that i don't i don't think these people who say that it's a full-time job i don't think anyone uh is sitting there for 40 hours a week uh on mechanical turk so we ask people like how many hours they spend on the platform the, the average was, I think, around eight. The median was around five. There's some variability to people who say that they use it more as a full-time uh, source eight, of income. Sorry, per week? Um, 
yeah, I think the question was uh, per week. Uh, yeah. Um, so, you know, that's spending a fair amount of time, but, you know, they're not completing just surveys. Um, and, uh, and yeah, so, you know, I think people, it's, there's a lot of competition for studies and hits on Mechanical Turk. So people use these like scripts, they have, you know, notifications that come their way. Uh, the most advanced and kind of um, experienced users are more likely to be using this sort of stuff. So they get notifications and, you know, they're really good at like uh, kind of trying to maximize their time. Uh, the other question, right, that we touched on a little bit was earnings. And we do see like people who uh, spend more time on the platform and say that they're using it as a, like, a full-time source of work. Uh, they make a lot more than people who are just kind of casually using it. And there's a lot of reasons for that. Um, but some of it has to do with like just being really plugged in and savvy to like how to use these scripts, how to grab hits very quickly, how to um, kind of like maximize their time. Um, sorry, I didn't have a I didn't have a question queued up, and so <laughs> I was just used to Paul talking over me the whole time. This is just completely new to me. Uh, <laughs> uh, but yeah, so I guess like. Um, aside from the how long are people spending on the platform and what are they using it for, um, what are some other like misconceptions or, or questions that you were trying to address in the paper and what did you find? Yeah, so some of them that I think we do um, address is in these kind of criticisms of Mechanical Turk, um, people had really described it as this like very abusive place that requesters are uh, rejecting work um, you know, some people have said, I, I know requesters who will openly admit to posting tasks and rejecting the work um, assignment just because they don't want to pay for it. But, you know, the requester gets to keep the, the product of that work, whether it's, you know, a business related thing or a study. Uh, so there were some accusations of that. And then there were um, various sorts of reports of people just being kind of exposed to very uh, kind of disturbing and maybe even traumatic content so like a number of companies it's been rumored here and there and maybe there's like uh, actually i think in a couple of cases there's good evidence that content moderation tasks are posted to mturk so um i think maybe it was youtube or a couple of others you know they, they post these like kind of disturbing things that people post online and they ask people to make content moderation judgments like is this should this be you know allowed or whatever so people might have to look at like some kind of gory photos crime scene photos different stuff like that and make content moderation judgments. Um, and then there was even a little bit of a suggestion that like academic surveys were disturbing to people asking about, you know, past traumatic experiences and stuff like that. So uh, there were a couple of different just things floating around out there saying people really have a bad experience while they're on the platform. And we wanted to ask people about that. So we asked, you know, like how often do you have assignments and hits rejected? We knew um, just from looking at cloud research data, which is a, a huge, huge data set, <laughs> that rejections were incredibly rare, like less than 1% of all the assignments submitted through cloud research are rejected. And something like 50% of requesters never reject a single assignment. Um, uh, so, so we knew most people were not engaging in, in rejections. And so we expected that to be pretty low. Um, we also expected that, uh, or, or were interested in exploring like how frequent and common are these disturbing experiences, these studies and hits or where you're asked to, um, you know, kind of without warning, um, engage in some tasks that it could be disturbing to like, you know, a very, uh, the normal person. And we found reports of those were both 
you know, pretty low. Uh, so people told us like less than 1% of the hits that they submit are rejected, which fits with, with our data. Um, there's actually a kind of a funny thing that we had a slider. People could like use the sliding scale, right? Um, and it went from like zero to one, you know, kind of whole number increments. We had, after we launched the study, a number of uh, workers email us and say, you need to like uh, allow us to answer in more kind of granular, fine grained, because it's actually less than 1%. So like a quarter of a percent. So we had to change that after we launched. Um, and then, you know, it's not, it's not like, I would say it's not like these criticisms come out of nowhere. People do have experiences where they have hits rejected, right? And those are disturbing. And they sometimes do uh, get asked to complete disturbing tasks. But uh, kind of back to the point of the paper, we find that the reality of this, the evidence that we gather is just these are much more infrequent and common than kind of the conversation about MTurk would lead people to suggest. It's, it doesn't characterize the majority of people's experiences on the platform or even the uh, the people who are on there a lot, the majority of their time. Yeah, that's interesting. I actually remember like the first few times I used MTurk and I really didn't appreciate the actual power dynamic because I, I didn't really feel like I was the powerful person. And I, I remember like this initial data, data set, literally like combing through the data, like row by row, looking for anybody that like took a dollar, <laughs> took a dollar from me and didn't pay attention to the survey. And I remember like, even, I mean, this is, I feel a bit guilty now to admit it, but like I sort of rejected people because their responses to some scale didn't make sense. Right. Like they, so like it was, there was reversed items and it, they were high on a reversed item and they were also high on a non-reversed item. And I was like writing people individual messages saying, this is why you're not getting a dollar from me. I think that stuff very quickly, you learn to not sweat the small stuff like that because it's just not worth your time at all. But I think when you, yeah, my point is, I think when you start using these programs, you don't necessarily see these yourself as the high power person and the exploitative person. I think researchers are worried about being exploited as well, right? Um, from uh, they're going to sort of pretend to uh, pay attention to my study. But I think, I mean, I think the 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 people posting the hits are in the high power solution and and situation and and don't. Yeah, just really should um, uh, sparingly reject work. I mean, we've started just having attention checks at the, I mean, this is sort of prolific guidelines, but you have to have your attention checks very early in the study so people aren't kind of doing work and then getting kicked out of a study. Uh, and they have to be pretty easy for people to get through. But I wanted to ask you about this. So I know, I know, um, there's a very big difference between cloud research and just MTurk, right? In terms of data quality, uh, and uh, Prolific's own paper showed that as we kind of went through with um, Kat Dama when she was on the podcast. But so my lab is that I'm in at Columbia is currently making a move to Prolific just because of data quality issues that we've we've been having with MTurk, and just sort of one anecdote. So I have this study where people have to sort of they go through this training phase where they see faces and the face is paired with a behavior. And then later I have this sort of memory check where it's like, which face was paired, which with uh, this specific behavior. 
and sort of chance performance is 25%. So you like, it's one out of four. And even with, you know, attention checks um, and other kind of ways of removing bad data, the MTurk participants were performing at about 30% accuracy on that memory check. Prolific, they're at like 70%. So we were just been talking about this in lab and just saying like there's, there really just seems to be a big difference between these participant pools just in terms of how engaged they are, how, how much attention they pay, how conscientious they are in performing these tasks. So what would you say to our lab? Like, I mean, this is your chance to sort of spruik cloud research and, and convince people that, you know, they should try it. But, you know, from our point of view or from my point of view, I've just seen much, much better data quality um, from uh, prolific compared to MTurk, even, even when I'm sort of selecting people with very high approval rates, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah, what, what would be, what would be my motivation to try cloud research? Uh, and what, what could you, what, what can you say about sort of data quality and what, what you do to ensure data quality? Cause it, I would say there's definitely still a lot of people in the overall MTurk pool who are not, <laughs> we're really not paying much attention to the tasks that they get. Yeah, so it, it's interesting. There's a number of uh, things. I'll, I'll try not to ramble too long in my uh, response here. But um, so the first thing I think is that there are a lot of people on uh, Mechanical Turk and um, and they don't provide uh, great data. And, you know, Mechanical Turk put this whole reputation system in place, giving requesters the ability to reject work to kind of respond to that. And, um, you know, I don't know if um, it, it's hard to kind of establish exactly what's going on. If people, uh, right, part of the problem with Mechanical Turk since about 2018 has been, there's a lot of people from international countries who are getting the studies that are meant for people in the US, they're using VPNs and other stuff. So it's really difficult to understand whether or not that's like amounts to fraud, people know what they're doing, or if they're you know, using VPNs and stuff, they see these studies and they take them and like, they're, they're trying to give, you know, an effort, but they don't, maybe they don't have English, um, uh, skills that are matched to the survey. Um, certainly like the gibberish sort of open-ended responses you see, that's all uh, a problem. If, uh, you know, if, if it takes a lot of time to sort through this and make rejections. And like you said, no one wants to be in the position of like rejecting someone over a dollar and, and making a big fuss, but that whole reputation system is there to solve this problem, right? Like one way or another, if these people started incurring lots of rejections, they would be likely to stop doing what they're doing. Or eventually um, the reputation system would mean that they get locked out of studies that set a certain threshold. Because no one rejects hits on Mechanical Turk, the reputation system is, is basically useless. Like, yes, if you add tons and tons of hits and like a 99% approval rating and you get into that top group of people on Mechanical Turk who have always provided great data, then you'll get good data. But that's a very, very small group of people. Uh, one of the papers that we wrote a couple of years ago was called um, Tapped Out or Barely Tapped. And part of what it shows is that uh, that recommendation to use a 99% approval rating and 100 hits completed, that locks out the people who have just signed up for the platform, people who don't have 100 hits. And overall, that's about 35% of the Mechanical Turk population. So that alone, that, that threshold locks out uh, a big group of people who are naive to social science studies, who you might want to participate in your research. 
Um, and so the reputation system has become very ineffective over time. And what I think matters for the, um, the pool and kind of the composition here is, so cloud research doesn't control who signs up on Mechanical Turk. Uh, what we can do and what we have been doing for the last couple of years is <clears throat> vetting participants on there with our own kind of data quality measures. So we made a big shift to data quality, both in the market research panels and on Mechanical Turk. We have these tools that we've developed. Some of them uh, are even patented, but it's a huge library of questions we, uh, we put people through and we make decisions about whether or not this person should be a part of the cloud research pool that's available on Mechanical Turk or not. So we don't have the ability to vet people at the point of signup, but we can vet them once they're on the platform. And that list is approaching like 100,000 people now. So I think if you use that group, uh, we have a lot of confidence in the data quality that you're going to receive. Uh, not to get into too much of the back and forth with prolific, but uh, you know they don't really advertise this. I have a, I have a lot of issues actually that I would uh, you know point out in their in their paper in a very respectful way. But they actually do that same vetting at the point of sign up. They don't necessarily advertise that to people, but no platform really wants everyone who wants to sign up for an account to be able to participate in studies. So um, so prolific has a vetting system that participants go through when they sign up. And that allows them to control the quality of that pool uh, the same way that we do with our approved group, but we're not in charge of Mechanical Turk directly. So lots of people sign up who, you know, we wouldn't necessarily allow into our studies. That's also a little bit of the motivation for the platform that we're launching, Connect. Like we're confident in our data quality tools. We're confident that we understand the issues in these online panels and that we can deliver quality data to people. And so uh, creating our own platform, uh, which we're, about to connect, uh, about to launch here called Connect, um, allows us to kind of have more of that control, offer better data quality to people. Are you convinced, Paul? Well, not necessarily. So I, I want to be convinced, you know, because Prolific has has been sending us like legal threats <laughs> in email. So, so I, um, I think I can say this. We might have to pull this part as well. So basically, we did this we did a part with uh, Kat Dharma. Basically, there's this complex legal situation going on where they have some injunction in the UK against her representing herself as CEO of of Prolific. She was on our podcast. We introduced her as the CEO of Prolific. And we started getting these weird emails. They're not that Super. weird. <laughs> well, the subject line is without prejudice. And I was like, what this, yeah, is it's this? like legalese this email? Terms. Like some weird legalese term. Yeah. And it's basically saying, like, you have to you have to pull the pod. If you don't, we're going to contact Buzzsprout, which is the company that we use to just host and and send the podcast to apple and and itunes and and all that stuff like that and i just thought it was a bit ridiculous like really like not that many people listen to this pod like it's really really not a big deal and to, to be getting yeah anyway so i wanted to ignore it but rachel, rachel convinced me uh let's just anyway so to our listeners that's the reason that pod is no longer available on our feed but nobody listens to pods that are more than two weeks old anyway so i don't think it makes a difference anyway all of this is just to say, I I want you to make a good argument <laughs> against prolific and for cloud research because you know, like I don't, I, I didn't appreciate getting these uh, these legal threats, but I also still don't really see what you offer that they don't. Well, I think I mean I think in a lot of ways uh, our two companies uh, are similar 
and have been on a similar trajectory. And, and you know, if you broaden this uh, into the view of online research as a whole, I don't think that there's uh, much doubt that cloud research and uh, prolific as platforms are kind of out in front. So the market research space is like um, a, a much bigger kind of question mark on data quality than these micro task platforms where you, you know, it's smaller, there's fewer people, uh, you can get them to engage in tasks that researchers are directly in control of compensation. There's more of a, a back and forth, whereas some of these market research panels, and I know a lot of your listeners and a lot of academics have less exposure to, there's um, a little bit more uh, separation between the researchers and the participants, and there's lots of different expectations. So uh, I think, you know, as the paper shows, you can get good quality data from prolific and cloud research. Uh, you know, I Maybe I'm being touchy, but I think there's a few things that they, the way they present data in that paper that are not uh, necessarily, um, uh, I don't know the word, uh, not necessarily <laughs> fair uh, to, to cloud okay. research fully. Right. Um, no, so, no, this is, this is, yeah, this is interesting. Think, <laughs> like, do tell. Well, um, so there's a number of things that, uh, <laughs> Yeah, this plot has taken a turn now, huh? Um, so, you know, they there was a back and forth, actually. They posted this uh, this preprint, um, and, and maybe not to get into it too much, but, you know, Ayal Pierre is this guy who uh, who works in this space. He has uh, one of the papers about reputation on Mechanical Turk. So he's, he's known to look at data quality, and I had this email exchange. We're often looking to collaborate with people outside of cloud research. Uh, you know, we're aware that there's a... Um, a conflict of interest at some times, or at least a perception of a conflict of interest at others. And so we look to like collaborate with people outside of cloud research to kind of act as a check on that. We do some other things to try to be above board with what we publish. But anyways, I had reached out to him and said, you know, hey, uh, we're aware of your work. If you're ever like interested in collaborating, we'd like to talk about that. And he wrote me back and said like, hey, yeah, I'm actually, I have a paper in the works right now that I think you'll be interested in. I'll send it to you very shortly, and then we'll uh, we'll move on from there. And what he ended up sending me was this uh, paper that he had collaborated on with Prolific that kind of really made cloud research look uh, look pretty bad. So their first study was um, just using cloud research to access Mechanical Turk, but not using our pool of vetted participants. And they they, they labeled that as a cloud research sample. And I uh, understand from them they claim this is an, an honest mistake. They didn't understand how the system worked. Uh, but even since then, you know, so we had this back and forth, which I think motivated them to run their second study, which showed cloud research provides good data. And there's some points in there. Uh, I don't remember them off the top of my head. Some that are, you know, a little bit better for cloud research. I think maybe the attention checks, some things where prolific looks a little bit better. But I just think the presentation of some of those findings as a whole, and if you look at that paper, you look at the abstract, you look at the discussion and the take-home points, it very much uh, makes the point that prolific is the platform you should be using. So um, you know, maybe that's because I'm affiliated with cloud research and I have these, uh, these group ties that I read that a little bit differently than other people. Maybe, um, maybe it could be presented differently, but there's also some other pieces in there. So like, you know, I very much applaud them for, uh, for posting their data. That's something that we do as well. Um, we had looked through some of it and they'd asked people questions about, you know, wages and how much they earn and people actually, um, in this data, uh, it's been a while since I've looked at it. So I, you know, don't want to say things that are inaccurate, but people actually report earning more on uh, Mechanical Turk and cloud research than on, you know, prolific. And uh, going back to what you said about imposing this sort of like minimum stuff, that's a point that's not as convenient. Um, and so some of that stuff got left out of the paper. Um, other issues like that, that I just think 
Um, they continue to label the mTurk sample like cloud research in parentheses to kind of attach us to that. So uh, a number of issues like that in the paper that, um, and, and then, you know, the point is also, um, it's not an apples to apples sort of comparison when uh, you, you take the prolific platform where they vet who gets onto that platform to begin with, and you take kind of uh, using cloud research to access mTurk without that vetting, you're kind of at a different level, right? Whereas if you compare participants who we vetted to participants who they vetted, you're in a very similar place. Okay, well, I definitely hope you didn't say anything inaccurate there because otherwise we're going to get more legal threats from prolifics. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I probably got myself in big trouble there. <laughs> as long as you, as well. With I don't know. Was. Okay, I mean, really, yeah. So if you want to support companies that don't bully small independent podcasts, you should use cloud research. That's, <laughs> this is what we're saying. I mean, they also gave me an internship, so that was nice. So, yeah, you know, um, but yeah, I, I think like the main, uh, the, I think like having, so I, sorry, what, like one difference that I see between uh, prolific and cloud research is the pool of participants that's available. And I haven't actually run studies on prolific, so I don't, and I haven't looked at it recently. Um, but it seemed at the time that I looked into it, like it had more uh, participants in the UK and like it wasn't as like US centric, which is a good thing if you're interested in doing more like international cult cross-cultural research or whatever. But for my purposes, like looking at, you know, uh, political stuff in the US, I, I really wanted to have like access to a very large sample of high quality participants um, who, yeah, were based in the US. So that was one thing um, for me. And yeah, I'll just say like, like I'm a I'm interning at cloud research because I'm a fan and not the other way around. So like, you know, one of the reasons that I, like I saw, I, you know, sought them out and like, uh, reached out about uh, getting a position there because I had run studies on MTurk that were not like on the approved list. And then I ran studies on the approved list. And the it's just like such a stark difference. Like when you read the open-ended responses, which I have in almost all of my surveys. And like, I did feel like I was being exploited on, on MTurk because like half of the responses where people were like copy pasting things from the internet and had the other, like another, like 30% were just like nonsense words. And then you go to the like approved list and it's like 99% of the responses are really like well thought out, uh, you know, responses to, to open-ended questions and the um, quantitative stuff also looks good. So yeah, this just seemed to me like really solving a, a big problem uh, in a good way. Um, yeah, yeah just to, I, I think you're right. Um, just to quickly say, and there are some differences in who you can access. Um, so Prolific certainly does have more people, um, I think, in a number of European countries, right? I mean, I listened to the podcast that you had with uh, with Katya, and she mentioned the countries that Prolific is in. Um, uh, you can't get those people on Mechanical Turk. Um, Cloud Research does have uh, the market research panels where you can do a lot of stuff, but uh, there's like less engagement. There's some issues there. So there is some difference there. And then I'm not sure that people are fully aware of some of the overlap in um, people on uh, MTurk and Prolific, right? So uh, it's an issue that I've thought of before. Like you, you go to 
I don't, I don't really know actually how people use prolific if they set like hit maximums or minimums or if they're interested in how much experience people have, but right, you might go to prolific or, or mechanical Turk cloud research, whatever you might set. Like, I don't want people who have a certain number of studies completed, right? I don't want these like experts, but you don't get an accounting of how much the, those people have completed in other places, like uh, the opposite platform. So that, that complicates things a little bit. Um, but there is some overlap in the participant pool within the U S and I think the prolific paper kind of comments on that too. Yeah. So one thing that I wanted to just to connect this back to the ethics paper, um, one thing I was wondering about was I didn't see anything in there about data quality. Um, and so I was just like curious, like since the, cause you just sampled from native MTurk for that study, right? And so how do you know that the responses that you got were high enough quality to be included or does that not matter for this study? Yeah, no, it's a great question. Uh, so we sampled from uh, MTurk directly because we didn't have our approved list at the time. It was like, uh, the first study was in like December, 2019 and then uh, the early spring of 2020. And we started the vetting to build our approved list uh, sometime in that spring or early summer. So we didn't uh, didn't fully have that. Um, it's a great question. Um, we, um, <clears throat> I think we included a couple of questions, you know, like traditional attention check sort of things. Um, you know, I think in this case, uh, any issues like that, as long as it's not like 50% of the data set, uh, are adding noise to our point estimates. So that's, that's something that makes this, uh, paper a little bit different is that we're like asking about percentages of things. How often does this happen? And so I think, um, you know, data quality issues would, would lead to noise, um, and kind of less precise estimates. Um, there's a lot of like, after we gather, you know, it's a big sample to begin with. So it's two, that's like 2000 people. I think we had two, two studies. So overall about 4,000 participants. Um, it's a pretty big, pretty big sample. There's like this stratification and the random sampling of participants. So, um, yeah, it wasn't necessarily the, the top, um, aim at the time. Um, there might be, uh, some participants in that data set who, you know, are no longer included in our pool, but, um, uh, yeah, overall, I think like uh, the point estimates and stuff and the things that we were doing at the time, it wasn't, uh, we weren't seeing a, a massive problem. I think actually some of the, the issues have continued to get a little bit worse just on inter directly since that time and with data quality. Nice. Do you have, do you have more questions, Rachel? I have a couple more, but do you want to, anything else um... on the paper? Specifically on the paper, I think that was pretty much it. Um, I guess like about paper, about papers in general, like and conflict of interest. But I don't know if, uh, yeah, should I get into that? Sure. <laughs> oh. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So I, was, I, I mean, it's just like a quick question, I guess. And you, you kind of touched on this a little bit about um, how when you have a conflict of interest, you want to be able to demonstrate that that's not the reason for your findings. Um, but yeah, I was just wondering if you could expand a little bit and just kind of convince our listeners, I guess, that um, reading cloud research papers is worthwhile and that it's, you know, uh, you can trust the, the data in there. Um, I know that one of the, when I was just starting 
um, grad school and I was like looking into all the state equality stuff. Uh, I read some of the cloud research papers and saw the conflict of interest thing at the top. And I was like, okay, so why am I even reading this? Um, (laughs) And so I don't think that was the right approach to have, but yeah, what are your thoughts? Uh, Yeah, I really appreciate the question and uh, the opportunity to talk about it. So um, (laughs) I guess maybe I'll first just say it's kind of, it's kind of funny, uh, a unique or odd position for me to be in. I'm like, you know, I'm, I'm a fairly reserved guy. Like I really like talking to and connecting with people, but like, I'm not super active on Twitter. Um, I try to like, you know, avoid controversy. I don't really like putting myself out there for a lot of things um, when it's not necessary. And so it's, it was weird to be in this position of like, oh yeah, when we write these papers, there's now this conflict of interest thing that I have to think about and address and write like, I, there's no training on that in graduate school because most people uh, don't have it or don't have conflicts of interest to the same degree, even though lots of you know academics publish uh, stuff that might conflict with stuff they do on the side or whatever um, in, in other areas, not necessarily social side. So when I um, got this job and started working on papers, I kind of um, pushed to put some things in place. Not that pe- anyone was against it, but like I just said, you know, I think we need to pre-register predictions um, lots of influence from the open science stuff. I think we need to make our data open. I think we need to put conflict of interest statements um, on papers where it's relevant um, or even where there's a perception of it. And those actions, um, I mean, it took a lot of like, work um, to, to figure out how to navigate this because there's lots of cases in, in academic publishing broadly in science where people do publish and they don't claim this stuff. So it's not like there's like a whole lot of great examples to turn to, or at least it took me a while to dig up examples where people had disclosed conflicts of interest. So, you know, we put some work into developing what our process was going to be. That includes, um, you know, in several instances, working with people outside of cloud research who might just like, you know, act on a check against our sort of biases or how we characterize something. Uh, so we put all those things in place. Um, and even so, like, and I, it, I would say, I think those steps, you know, I understand uh, people's kind of uh, reluctance when they read a cloud research paper, or they see that, but those steps are like well beyond what is required, um, not, you know, to pat ourselves on the back or anything, but like you could, there's lots of cases where people publish things and they do have a conflict of interest and they don't disclose it. And there's not necessarily like rigorous enforcement mechanisms at journals to like look into this sort of stuff. So, so, you know, we put that stuff out there because we want to be like seen as trustful. We want to be seen as honest brokers of things that we share. And sometimes the reaction, I think, from academic readers is, oh, this has a conflict of interest. Like, I'm not going to waste my time. Or, you know, we get a lot of pushback and reviews. And so it's almost kind of like, you know, we we put this stuff up front and we get even more pushback or people like saying, that's great. You had a conflict of interest disclosure, but I think you need to say it like right up front in the paper so that people know um, about this. And that's like, it's a little bit frustrating, but you know, I kind of understand too, people don't have a lot of experience encountering papers with the conflict of interest. Um, They're not necessarily sure how to respond to it. And I think it kind of goes back to people might have this impression that cloud research is this like huge company, you know, making like tens of millions of dollars a year or something. Um, And in reality, it's like three uh, guys on our research team, three people, um, you know, I, actually I would include, uh, not, not all guys, uh, Rachel, I think you help us out, uh, quite a bit. And it's great to have you, um, on board. The research team is growing, but it's just yeah, three, their little helper as well. Yeah. Little <laughs> little helper. <laughs> no, that's, that's so nice. It's just like three, um, the, yeah. 
academics, you know, like, um, uh, so I kind of, yeah, like you said, have this uh, appointment where I do some adjunct teaching, uh, label Whitman, the like, chief research officer, he still has an academic appointment. And so, you know, I think it's like very valid for us to contribute things as scientists, but we also recognize like we have these dual appointments where we're also at this company that does have financial interest. And so we do what we can to kind of address that. And, you know, hopefully people still take the time to, to read our papers or maybe the paper's valuable enough or interesting enough, but I, I do kind of understand people don't have a good framework for how to approach, like, how do I assess this? How much of a conflict of interest do they have? Can I trust what they're saying? Like, should I trust any of it? I, I understand that. Yeah. Even if I'm I do slightly think frustrated that, by it. Yeah. I do think that having the pre-registration and uh, like having the data available helps a lot. Cause it's like, even if there is a conflict of interest and even if you don't agree hundred percent with the narrative, like the data are the data and the results are what they are and you can check it yourself. And if you don't, you know, so yeah, I think that helps. Although, yeah, I don't, I, I think it's just, some people are always going to be wary of it and there's not much. Do you, do you have the same response if it's like some leading academic writing a paper about their pet theory? I mean, I, yeah, this was on Twitter for a little bit about like people, I think this was like this past week where people were talking about how there's uh, academics, like star academics who get uh, speaker fees and, you know, to go around touting their their main theory. Um, and it's like, well, what if, uh, so then they have like, they're very strongly incentivized to make sure that their theory works because like there's a lot of money involved. And so in a sense, their papers are conflict of interest. Um, yeah, there's like yeah. a nature commentary or something uh, about this. I think that's what started it. And, you know, I mean, I, I don't think we talk about this enough. Uh, I don't really know how big of a problem it is, but like a lot of academics do have their like side uh, hustle. You know, it might be like uh, clinical work that they do if they're a clinician. It might be uh, consulting or like testifying in legal court cases, right? Because they're an expert on the topic. And like, there's just, when you get really good at something and you're an expert on it, there's like opportunities for financial entanglements, speakers fees, all these things that um, our norm is not necessarily to disclose those. Um, and, and I'm not trying to like say, oh, everyone has a conflict of interest, but uh, there are times when, you know, your brand is your research. It is the theories that you've built. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think that this article in Nature actually was doing a pretty good job of, of pointing that out. And it was, it was very interesting. Also, let's not let early career researchers off the hook here either. Like, I, I kind of think you should read every single scientific paper w through an extremely skeptical lens because, hmm. you know, if you're a grad student, you need those publications to get a postdoc, right? Like, it, it's always, there's always a, a vested interest. I don't know if it's a conflict of interest, there's always a vested interest in, um, you know, wanting to get the paper published, wanting to like convince the reader that you've found something worth publishing. I mean, yeah, I, I think I, what, what interests me, Rachel, is it just seemed like you had a very different response when you see the conflict of interest statement from like Aaron's research compared to how you read other research. And I guess like I, from my perspective, I probably feel that way about almost every paper I read and I'm looking for the yeah. looking for the red flags and the clues that they're pulling one over me which <laughs> are almost always there yeah no I do I, yeah I do agree with that like I'll uh, 
I, I don't know what it was, what, what the difference really is, but I a hundred percent agree that like, I don't trust most research. Um, and I think that people have, yeah, like I think the incentive of making a career for yourself is just as strong as the incentive of like making money. And so, um, yeah, just don't trust anything. Yeah. Well, you kind of, go ahead. Sorry. Oh, I was just going to say, it's funny to be in my position and, and articulate this view, but uh, maybe I'm naive. I, I actually like think most people operate in good faith. Um, you know, there's, uh, we can all be biased certainly and like make a case, but, um, and there's clear cases of people doing very shady, shoddy things. But I, I think most people are operating in good faith uh, when they publish their papers. And I kind of approach that that way. It doesn't mean I don't have like scientific skeptical, you know, mind on about like, does this paper really show what they think it shows? Are they really measuring this construct? Well, um, and I think that's some of what you're talking about, but like, I personally, um, yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting word. Good faith though. Cause like, how, I mean, how would you define that? Cause even, I mean, I wouldn't, I don't read a paper thinking that they're consciously lying to me. You know, it's more just like, you know, the way this has been written in the absolute optimal way to present it as publishable research. Uh, They probably believe what they're telling me. um, But I think there's a, there's a lot of gray area between like, I believe this uh, 100% honestly, and I'm consciously lying. And I know this is not true. There's a lot of like area in the middle where it's like, ah, well that those analyses that didn't work out, I've rationalized those failures in this way. I've rationalized all the data transformations I did and exclusions of outliers is like probably okay. And you know, the, yeah, like it's a complex spectrum there, uh, and good good faith is like probably a box that's ticked somewhere along there. Know, but yeah, yeah, that's a that's a good uh, fair point. So you probably answered my first question. When, I mean, you said you only have three researchers at the company. I was going to ask if I can have a job, but um, <laughs> guessing not. But it turns out we're growing. So. Doesn't make tens of millions of dollars. So let, yeah, I'll park that. Uh, my second question was, um, what did you guys think of the Will Smith thing? <laughs> just, just Go ahead, like, Aaron. <laughs> take, take a, uh, take Honestly, a detour. Yeah. I, I was so much more consumed in this than I thought I would be. Like, I'm the type of person, like, I don't give a damn about Hollywood. Like, I don't follow celebrities. It's just like, I've got, you know, more important things going on in my life. But like, I really like Will Smith and think he's like, I listened to this interview a couple months ago. We had this book coming out and he is very intentionally. Um, and I don't think like disingenuously, uh, as far as I know, um, cultivated a certain perception and persona. And like, it just was not what I expected. And so like, I was watching the video like 50 times. I was watching all these celebrities like share their views about it. I was just like way more wrapped up in Hollywood this week than I thought it would be. I was, it was just kind of shocking, which I think, from what I understand, characters is most people's response. I was just kind of blown away. So you think he shouldn't have done it? Um, yeah, you, I mean, so now you're really going to get me in trouble. Uh, <laughs> I don't think this characterizes most people's... Uh, I mean, I've had conflicted views about it, right? But I do think, like, if you want to live in a liberal democracy where people are allowed to have free speech, like, 
you know, they're sometimes going to say things that are insensitive. And like, I, I, I saw the look on um, Jada Pinkett's face. Right. And like, I could see she was not happy and, you know, pained or uh, I can see, and like, I felt bad for her. Right. Um, but like, it's a very bad line in my mind to think that like when someone says things that you don't like the, the that's an appropriate reaction. Um, and I mean, I, I feel kind of conflicted. Like I saw her face, right. I can like, that's the the part that tugs on me. Um, but like, yeah, I don't think it's a good um, precedent to like a- attack people when they say things that you don't like. What do you think, Rachel? Yeah. Cause you've, well, you've sort of talked about this before. Like you used to think words were literal violence. I think that as white people, we should not be commenting about <laughs> this. <laughs> no, uh, I think that that people saying that is ridiculous. Um, and I think that, uh, I mean, my main like push points of pushing back against narratives were like the narrative that alopecia is a disability um, because like, it's just hair loss. It's like, <laughs> growing hair. I have the ability to grow hair. <laughs> it's I, not impeding your function to do anything. Uh, it sucks. Like I would hate that's to lose my hair, but like, disability. just because people were like, you know, you can't mock people with disabilities. And it's like, so mm. I think that you shouldn't mock people for any reason. I feel uh, pretty strongly about that. Um, I don't think that we should. You just sh- mocked people for saying that white people can't I didn't, comment on. I didn't mock them. I disagreed with them. It was, I made a joke about it. <laughs> that but... was a mocking tone. That was a tone. Okay. Uh, well, thank you for calling me out. I'm calling that. you in. I'm calling <laughs> you in. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I don't know. I think that, um, I think we shouldn't, it doesn't, people shouldn't, we shouldn't need this like label of like they're disabled. Therefore we can't mock them. It should just be like mocking people is mean. We should be nice people. We should, you know, not be mean. We can, there's a lot of funny jokes that you can make that aren't at the expense of like people's pain. And uh, we should stick to those. But, you know, that's just like my moral opinion about it. Uh, I also think that we shouldn't slap people or hit them in any way if we don't like what they said. So both people were wrong in this case, I think. I think I largely agree. Was one one more wrong than the other? Um, Yeah, I think probably like Will Smith was a little bit more uh, wrong for, you know, resort Mm. restoring resorting to violence but um yeah what do you think of it yeah trying to get us in trouble i just found it so interesting from a psychological point of view like i don't remember who told me this or where i heard this or where i read this but somebody once said that like human beings are fascinated by two things more than anything else sex and violence and freud (laughs) Maybe, I don't know. <laughs> but I would just say, like, in my life, I haven't seen much uh, to uh, refute that refute that theory. And I, I just, like, you know, I was kind of on Twitter when it happened, and the, the hashtag was, like, was that real? And I, you know, I, I, was a, I was, like, a bouncer for seven years. So, like, I've had experience with you know, some physical altercations and stuff like that. So I was kind of watching the videos and analyzing it. So my <laughs> first thing was like, was this real? And I was pretty sure 
pretty quickly that it was real, but so many people were adamant on Twitter that it wasn't. So I was like, okay, let, let me just wait and see that that's going to play itself out. And then, and then you just knew that the takes were, the takes were going to be hot and flying fast the next day. <laughs> and we got everything, like every, everything, yeah. everybody's identity based grievances came out. And it was just like one crazy take after another. And this, yeah, like the the, the people saying that like white people can't talk about two celebrities, two famous celebrities having a physical altercation, you know, because they have different color skin. And it, like, it's just crazy to me because it's all right. You're really not thinking thinking this through, like the implications of what you're saying here. I don't know, but um, <laughs> I don't, I thought it was really interesting. Uh, not not so much the incident itself like i think you know i i think there's i have i have theories and takes about why why he did it you know there's i he's he's kind of been a bit humiliated by like this public knowledge that his wife sleeps around on on him and i i would be surprised if that didn't play some part in 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 causing him to like sort of take this macho stand i mean it, it was so weird that he laughed at the joke at first and then i i'm really i would love to see the footage of that camera that was on them because we've never seen that right we've never seen him go from i'm laughing oh and my wife looks hurt it cuts away the next time we see will he's walking towards chris and we don't get to see that moment for him where he looks at his wife obviously realizes oh no this is I shouldn't be laughing at this. Uh, I'm kind of in trouble here. I need to do something to change the situation. And because it obviously happened so fast uh, that he went from laughing to, no, I'm deciding to like march onto this stage. And we don't get to see that. I'd, I'd love to see that just from my voyeuristic, like interest in human psychology. But yeah, like, I don't know. It's just such a Everybody, everybody had a tweet about it. I was so proud of myself. I did I not. I didn't tweet about it yet. I didn't bravo, tweet about it. It's like we, I don't tweet about much. But. And, and we just have recorded a 10-minute segment <laughs> talking about it on the pod. So everybody has to have a take. It's fascinating. Yeah, I don't know. It I is just, fascinating. I, I actually, uh, I was telling my wife, I was like, I just have to start like spending less time on Twitter when this stuff happens because like it's not representative of people, right? You get... Uh, I have to remind myself that all the time you have like a group of people who are willing to share their opinions and they're not, um, first of all, not everyone's on there, but then the people who do speak out, right. You don't hear the other opinion. So it's not representative and it just like, it gets you all worked up in these things and it's just better to like, <laughs> to not see it. Yeah. So yesterday, I felt a little bit that way with this. Yeah. Yesterday I talked to a real life person and he hadn't even heard about it. <laughs> I was like, right. There you go. <laughs> What, How is that what? possible? <laughs> Who is this person? What the hell? <laughs> they must this not be on like Twitter. A, a blind 90-year-old yeah. or something like this. He's just like a 27-year-old, like, normal person. So, yeah, I think that that's a good reminder. Oh, wow. for, no such uh, thing. The rest of us. <laughs> no such thing as a normal person. Cool. All right. I, I got to go. I got to, I mean, my, yeah. I've locked my wife out of the office while I record and she needs she needs access so <laughs> but aaron thank you so much for joining us very nice to meet you yeah nice to meet you too thanks for having me on hope i uh didn't say anything gets you or or me in trouble 
Yeah. Um, let's let's hope not. And if you ever want to go to a Yankees game, let me know because I still haven't been to Yankee Stadium, and I would love to. I would love to go. Yeah. I. Uh, yeah, that would be great. I, I like to get down to a couple games a year. He's wearing a Yankees cap, by the way, for our listeners. So that, that'll make that <laughs> make more sense. <laughs> All right. Yeah. All, All right. right. Well, thank you. Thanks, Aaron. Thanks. Bye. 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 Bye.